Good morning. Good morning again. Good to see everybody. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. We uh, are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We got as far as chapter 20, but this morning I would like you to back up to chapter 19. Chapter John 19, and we're going to pick it up in verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who, was, uh, who, uh, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So John 19 ends with the death and burial of Jesus Christ and everyone present that day, the Pharisees, the Roman soldiers, and even Jesus' own disciples believe that the story of Jesus' life and ministry had ended there. Of course, death is where most people believe the story ends for all of us. They say that death is inevitable, uh, inevitable and final, and I have to admit, the statistics on death are pretty impressive. Last time I checked, 10 out of 10 people died. But seriously, we all know that death is inevitable. We don't like, like to talk about it. We tend to push it from our minds. We try to deny it. We even try to cheat it. Um, but inevitably, death will claim all of us someday, except for those who are taken in the rapture, of course, right? But I read a story about a little girl who's Daddy tearfully said to her one summer day, Honey, Mommy is dying. She has cancer. There's nothing more the doctors can do. By the time the leaves fall off the trees, Mommy will be gone. Well, as the weeks passed, the leaves began to turn colors and fall. And one day the father looked out the window and saw his precious little daughter in the front yard with a ball of string in her hand, trying to tie the leaves back onto the trees. She was trying to stop the inevitable from happening. Death is inevitable, but is it final? Well, some years ago, a Canadian author named G.B. Hardy wrote a book about life, philosophy, and destiny entitled Countdown, A Time to Choose. And in his book, he noted that there are really only two questions to ask with regard to death. First of all, has anyone ever defeated it? And secondly, if so, did he make a way for us to do it also? Hardy goes on to explain that he found the answer to both questions in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus died and was buried, but the story didn't end there. When Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who then betrayed Jesus to the chief priests, who then turned him over to Pilate, who had him crucified, as they laid the body of Jesus in the garden tomb and rolled that very large stone over the opening, everyone thought that was the end of Jesus. The story was over. 
And the message went out, I believe, from the councils of hell, Jesus defeated. You know, it reminds me of a true story that comes right out of history. One historian related it this way. He said, and I quote, June 18, 1815 was a very important day in the history of the world. Napoleon had just left the island of Elba where he had been rebuilding his army after his exile. Sailing back to the mainland of Europe, with him were 75,000 soldiers, including the old guard, perhaps the finest group of fighting men in the world. Although Arthur Wellesley, first Duke of Wellington, commander-in-chief of the British forces, forces pledged to do his best to stop Napoleon, the prospect for victory seemed bleak. At Waterloo, with only 67,000 Allied troops, Wellesley engaged Napoleon in battle. If Napoleon, who was heavily favored to win, was indeed victorious, there would have been no stopping him as he would have then um, made his attempt, his drive to reconquer all of Europe. The people in England waited for hours as the battle raged. Eager for news, they had a ship waiting in the English Channel which would signal the outcome of this historic battle to watchmen stationed in the towers along the shores of Dover. Finally, the word of, this, of the epic battle reached the signal ship, and they began to flag a message to the watchmen in the towers. The message, agonizingly slow, took shape letter by letter and, and, the fi and finally read, Wellington defeated. By then, a fog bank had rolled in and had completely uh, enshrouded the towers, cutting off all visibility. The hearts of the watchmen sank, but they quickly relayed the message to the waiting messengers on horseback, and the word spread like wildfire throughout all of England, Wellington defeated. Hopelessness and despair set in, as the British knew it would only be a matter of time before Napoleon would sail across the channel and lay claim to their country. However, by this time the fog had lifted, and after firing a cannon to get the attention of those in the tower, some of four flags began to wave again to signal the third and final word of the message, the word Napoleon. And what a difference that third word made. The full message, Wellington defeated Napoleon. And you know, guys, when I first heard that story, I could not, it just popped into my mind how much it relates to the story of Jesus being crucified. You know, when Jesus died and was buried, you know, a fog seemed to enshroud humanity. Darkness fell upon the land, which we've already studied. The earth seemed to quake, and all, as all of creation seemed to cry out, Jesus defeated. Hopelessness and despair filled the disciples' hearts. Heaven kind of held his breath as it now seemed that nothing would stop the enemy. But on the third day, that fog, so to speak, lifted as Jesus stepped from the tomb and the full message was broadcast to the world. Jesus defeated death. Satan had been stopped. Death had been forever defeated. As the angels announced to the women who came early that Sunday morning to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial, and the angel said to the ladies, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He isn't here. He has risen. Go tell his disciples. And they ran off 
with a mixture of joy and I don't know what. They were truly astonished. Look, the death of Jesus wasn't the end of the story. In fact, we know it was just the beginning. Through his death and resurrection, a whole new chapter uh, in the history of mankind began. As Jesus promised, John 10, right? Because I live, so will you live also. You know, many centuries ago, Job asked the question, if a man dies, will he live again? And guys, that is a question that has burned in the heart of man ever since the beginning of time. I mean, ever since the very first time man was made to taste death, the question that has hounded mankind is, has been, what happens after I die? Is death the end, or is it merely a doorway that leads into another life? But Jesus answered that question once and for all time when he said, because I live, you will live also. Jesus was saying that through his resurrection, he was going to conquer death so that death would no longer be able to hold us. And if we believe in him because he died and rose again, we would also rise again someday. So if a man dies, will he live again? Well, because of what Jesus did early one Sunday morning just outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, the answer is a resounding yes. C.S. Spurgeon, the great preacher and uh, pastor in England, Charles Spurgeon, said along these lines, and I'm quoting, the massive door you will observe was taken away from the grave, not merely opened but flung aside, rolled away, and henceforth forth, death's ancient prison house is without a door. The saints shall pass in, but they shall not be shut in. They shall tarry there as, as in an open cavern, but there is nothing to prevent their coming forth from it in due time, end quote. And that due time, of course, is the rapture, which we believe is getting very near. Now, guys, there are those who study the Christian doctrine of the resurrection and still don't understand what happened, you know, that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. They know the record, historical record, uh, shows that the tomb was empty. And by the way, um, that's something that the enemies of Christianity never deny. They never deny that the tomb was not empty because there's too much evidence, too many facts. Uh, history records that reality, right? Um, but because they refuse to believe the obvious conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead, they come up with all kinds of ri ridiculous explanations to explain why the tomb was empty. Now, there's a lot of them out there. I'll give you the three most, most popular ones. Okay, they get pretty strange after this, all right? First of all, the women, the dumb women, went to the wrong tomb, an empty tomb. Doesn't say much for how much they valued the women back then, right? I mean, the girls were probably more spiritually plugged in than the guys were. It was Mary of Bethany that six days before the crucifixion anointed Jesus' head for burial, anointed his, his body for burial by pouring the alabaster uh, flask of ointment upon his head and washing his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair. Mary knew he was going to be crucified. It's not that he hadn't said it, but the guys, they were too consumed with visions of grandeur about being prime ministers in the coming kingdom. Mary, when she sat at his feet, 
loved him and listened to him, and she knew he was going to die soon. Now, these girls, the Bible says, were standing a ways away watching Jesus being crucified, weeping, broken. And then when they took his body down, they made it a point to watch where they laid the body because they were going to come back Sunday morning and bring more spices and things to finish preparing his body properly for burial. They knew where the body was buried. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. And if they had, that would have meant Peter and John also went to the wrong tomb. And the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leadership who all raced to the tomb to confirm that it was empty. Now that's ridiculous. Some of these theories, because of willful, stubborn unbelief, become so ridiculous. It's just easier to believe the truth than to believe your made-up, goofy theory. Number two, Jesus really didn't die in that cross. We've talked about this. He merely passed out from loss of blood, and after he was placed in the tomb, he revived. Now, this is a very popular theory. It's called the swoon theory, the swoon theory. The idea that Jesus really didn't die on the cross, but simply passed out from his severe beating and loss of blood, and then later uh, was revived by the cool air in, in the tomb so that he appeared to be resurrected when, in fact, he had simply passed out and came back uh, to consciousness. That, that's also ridiculous, ludicrous, right? But there are many proponents of this theory known as the swoon theory. Um, I'm just going to read you a, a real letter that, took, that was uh, written years ago, uh, a humorous, humorous letter uh, sent to the editor of a Christian magazine, again, years ago, uh, accurately, uh, which accurately evaluated the swoon theory. It goes like this. Now, he's writing to the editor of this Christian magazine. Dear Sir, our preacher said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that, it, and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Sincerely, bewildered. Dear bewildered, beat your preacher with a scourge whip consisting of nine leather straps, each containing jagged pieces of glass, bone, and or metal until his back is reduced to hamburger and his organs are exposed. Then nail him to a cross and let him hang in the hot sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, uh, and put him in an airless tomb for 72 hours and see what happens. <laughs> Again, come on. It's just easier to believe heroes from the dead. I th I've said it before, let me say it again. I think it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. When they talk about our faith, you know, and they ridicule us for having faith, they got more faith than I ever could think of, you know? They believe everything came from nothing all by itself. That's the evolutionary model. That's what they cling to. I believe, my faith is not as strong as that, I believe at the beginning an all-powerful, all-intelligent being spoke the universe into existence. And if that makes me look like a fool because I believe that, so be it. Number three on the list of theories that unbelievers come up, have come up with to, for why the tomb was empty, the disciples stole the body. Now, ori uh, you know, originally Mary Magdalene thought that someone had stolen the body of Jesus. You, you read that in John 20, verses 13 to 15. 
But Mary was overwhelmed with grief and emotion, and she didn't stop to really think about that was impossible. And I'll tell you why in a moment, all right? She just saw the stone rolled away, the tomb was empty, she ran to tell the guys, and she was just, she, she believed that somebody had stolen Jesus' body. She says that to Peter and John, right? And yet this theory that the disciples stole the body of Jesus got its start right after Jesus was, uh, right after Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, turn to Matthew 28, and then leave your finger in Matthew, because we're going to come to chapter 27 in a minute. So Matthew 28, verse 11. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. The stone was rolled away. The body of Jesus is gone. Verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. They're telling the guards this, the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, look, uh, just tell everyone you fell asleep and the disciples came while you were sleeping and took the body. Verse 14, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him. We'll stick up for you. We'll make it right and uh, make you uh, secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Well, it's still reported among not just the Jews, but Jewish people today, this day. Because if you ask an Orthodox Jew about Jesus and you ask him, well, the tomb was empty. Uh, what happened to the body? They will typically tell you, well, uh, the soldiers fell asleep and the disciples, his disciples came and took the body with them. And they believe that. That's what they have been taught even up until this present time, right? Um, but let me just tell you this, and, and let me say this to you guys. Um, you know, sometimes the messages are more devotional in content. Sometimes they're more instructional. If we're going to intelligently defend our faith, as the Bible tells us to, always be ready to give a reason to everyone who asks you a, excuse me, give a, an answer. To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. We ought to have a working knowledge on the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. The resurrection is the top one, okay? So this morning, I'm going to give you kind of like a classroom presentation on some of these things because I think it's important to be able to knock down some of these criticisms of the of the resurrection when they're they're absurd on their face even okay but there were th this idea that the disciples stole the body the police the police the soldiers fell asleep yeah the police they all fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body uh, out of the tomb there were three obstacles or safeguards that secured the tomb and would have prevented the disciples from getting in and would have prevented Jesus from getting out if he was a mere man who had not really died on the cross but simply passed out. First of all, there was the stone. We keep talking about the stone. The stone was a very large stone, about four foot high, weighing between three and 4,000 pounds, so a couple of tons. It was placed in a channel, as we have said, rolled down a slight uh, incline. And uh, the idea is that it, it securely sealed that tomb opening. Then you had the Roman seal. Now, 
when the Jews asked Pilate to have his soldiers seal the tomb, he said, look, you've got some Roman soldiers under your care, under your direction. You have your guys seal the tomb. So it was a Roman seal. And everyone knew that if you were to break a Roman seal, in this case on the tomb of Jesus, uh, you did so under the pain of death. It, it meant execution. You, you, were, you were forfeiting your life if you broke a Roman seal. It was a capital offense. And then number three was the Roman guard. Now, guys, each shift or watch, and there was four of them, was manned by four Roman soldiers called a quaternion. Four soldiers at any given time were watching over that tomb. Again, this idea that the disciples stole the body of Jesus while the guards slept. There were 18 separate things a Roman guard could be executed for, and one of them was for falling asleep on duty. And listen to me. These are some of the facts that a lot of people don't understand, don't have never heard. Four guys. If one of them fell asleep, all four were executed. So some serious motivation to make sure that one of your buddies didn't fall asleep you were on duty with, right? I mean, think about that. If only one out of the four fell asleep, all four would be executed. Because Rome felt so strongly about their guard, soldiers guarding important sites, they really put a high price on the fact if you, you know, and, and it just, I was telling first service, I, I don't watch a lot of biblical movies because I just don't like the, the license they take with the movies and what they turn, there's a few good ones, but, but not a lot of them, okay? And I w was watching one movie one time, and they showed this scene, and I knew what they were doing. They were trying to, uh, to cause the audience to think that the idea that the soldiers fell asleep and the disciples stole the body was plausible. In fact, that's what really happened. And so in the movie, you see four guys about two blocks away from the tomb, and they're kind of sleeping, you know. And, and, and here, like, the, they're nowhere near the, the tomb. Look, those guards were posted right outside the tomb. That's what they were guarding. They didn't want the disciples to break in, nor grave robbers. And so they were stationed there, and they knew they had to be right there, because if not, and something happened to the body if it was stolen... It was meant their lives. Um, in his book, I Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus, author George Ladd argues that in verifying the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we should start what we all agree on. See, uh, critics want to start with the hardest things first, the most controversial things. And, and Ladd said, George Ladd says, look, why don't we find common ground and start with, with what we most of all agree with? I'm going to share them with you. There's seven, okay? Um, the things that most people, the givens, you might say, things that most people just assume were true, all right? First of all, Jesus predicted his resurrection. He predicted his resurrection. On four different occasions in the Gospels, Jesus predicted that he was going to be crucified and on the third day would rise again. Now, 
skeptics try to claim that those predictions were written after the resurrection by the gospel writers. But in fact, what the fact is that those predictions were well known even by the enemies of Jesus before his crucifixion. And this was proven by what they did, his, his enemies did on Saturday, the day before he rose from the dead. Look at Matthew 27. And let's pick it up in verse 62. So on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, so this is Saturday, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver, talking about Jesus, can you believe that? How that deceiver after three, said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by, by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So here the Bible tells us clearly that not only did Jesus tell his disciples that he was going to be crucified on the third day rise again, but it was common. He, it apparently he said it to other people. The religious leaders of Israel heard it, and now they're afraid. They didn't believe he was going to rise from the dead. But they did believe it was possible that his disciples would steal his body from the tomb and claim he had risen from the dead. And that deception, they said, would be worse than anything else. So Jesus predicted his resurrection. Number two, the disciples weren't mentally prepared for the resurrection. What do I mean? Well, their mindset was one of conquest, not crucifixion. What am I saying? They believed Jesus was the Messiah, rightly so. And they also believed that as Messiah, he was going to lead them in a revolt against Rome at any time. They kept waiting for him to do it, right? And they believed because he is the Messiah, and they believed Messiah, when he came, would lead them in a revolution against, at that time, Rome, throw off the yoke of, Rome, of the Roman oppression and establish the kingdom where he would reign from Jerusalem as king visibly and they would be his prime ministers ruling over all the earth. Well, when Jesus was crucified, it took them by surprise. And at that moment, their hopes and dreams were dashed. And they all fled, the Bible says, and hid themselves because they were afraid they were going to be next. The Romans were going to come for them next. So they were all hiding out. Guys, they weren't thinking resurrection at all. So that when it actually happened, it took them all by surprise. Now, we see this clearly in the, re in the reaction of the disciples to the report of the women that Sunday morning. When they came to tell the disciples the women had been to the tomb, it was empty, and the angel said, you know, he's not here, he's risen, go tell his disciples. So they ran to tell the guys what had happened, right? That the tomb was empty, and an angel had told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. And Luke 24, verse 11 records uh, the response of these guys. Um, not verbally, but this is how they felt. Uh, and their words, the words of these women, that Jesus, the tomb was empty, that Jesus had risen. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, fairy tales. 
and they did not believe them. So Jesus' disciples were not looking for him to rise from the dead. They were completely taken off guard. They were surprised, to say the least. And uh, so they weren't planning on stealing the body and concocting any revela- uh, resurrection ho- <coughs> hoax at all. Number three, all right, and we got to state the obvious with some of these, and, and uh, George Ladd does. Number three, Jesus, listen, was dead and buried. Now, that is something most people agree on. You have your swoon theory nut jobs, uh, and, and that's fine. You can believe whatever you want. But for most reasonable people, even critics of Christianity, many of them are honest enough to look at the facts honestly. History records that Jesus was, in fact, dead and had been buried. Guys, Rome knew how to kill people. Did I just say it like that? Rome knew how to execute people. Some estimate that by the time Jesus was crucified, 70,000 people had been crucified by the Roman government. That's a lot of people. They knew how to execute people on the cross. And here's something else you might not have known. Four executioners had to sign Jesus' death certificate. You had to have four executioners sign off on the, on the death certificate proving or authorizing that the person crucified was actually dead. I mean, to sign a death certificate when the person condemned to die was not really dead, well, that was to bring the, the death sentence upon yourself. So consequently, they made sure that the person was really dead before signing their name on that certificate. Now, Jesus had died so soon. He chose the time of his death. Remember, he said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. I have the power to take it down. I have the power to put it down. I have the power to take it up again. So he chose the time of his death. At one point, after being on the cross for six hours, we read about three in the afternoon, he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. Because he died sooner than most criminals die, and he was no criminal, of course, but he died sooner than most men die uh, from being crucified, um, just to make sure he was actually dead. Um, the Romans, one of the Roman soldiers on, on guard, um, he administered what we talked about a week or so ago. Uh, he administered the death stroke. What's the death stroke? Whenever Rome wanted to prove somebody that had been crucified was in, indeed dead while they hung on that cross, or for whatever reason, if they wanted to hasten the criminal's death on the cross, they would have one of the soldiers take a spear and ram it through his side where his heart was. And this was intended to either pierce the heart or sometimes it just pierced the pericardium, the sac, around the heart. And uh, when the soldier did that, out came water mixed with blood. And that was a sign that, that Jesus was indeed dead. Um, and and, and, and I, I quoted some medical people, doctors, who explained why this proved that Jesus Christ was, in fact, dead. The death stroke was administered. Uh, so Jesus was definitely dead, 
And, of course, we know that history records they laid him in Joseph's tomb. Number four, the tomb was empty. The body of Jesus was gone. Now, if it wasn't, okay, if, if, if the... Um, if Rome had not allowed Joseph to take the body and put it in his own tomb. Sometimes what Rome would do in cases where you had an indigent person, a, a poor person, a, you know, um, they would just have the person crucified, and then they would throw the body in a mass shallow grave. If Rome had done this, and uh, had, see, and that's the, what the critics say. Well, actually, what happened was uh, Pilate didn't let the body of Christ be given to Joseph and Nicodemus. Uh, instead, they threw it into a shallow grave, which is what they did a lot, and they did. So therefore, whenever we went to the tomb on Sunday morning, it was empty because Jesus' body wasn't buried there. But look, if that was the case, and Jesus' disciples started to go around proclaiming he had risen from the dead when Rome had simply placed it in a shallow grave. Don't you know the high priests and the, uh, and the chief priests and Pharisees would have ran to Pilate and would have demanded that Pilate produce the body so that this whole you know preaching of Jesus' resurrection could be put down immediately? That's not what happened. Rome did not take the body. They gave it to again, Joseph and Nicodemus, for burial. Now, guys, it is true, and the critics are right about one thing. An empty tomb doesn't necessarily prove the resurrection. But the fact is the tomb was empty. That's, that's a fact. So what happened to the body? And it begs the question, who moved the stone and took the body of Jesus? And why would they have done that? What was the motivation if that's true? There's only four plausible possibilities. Some of these we've already answered. First, the Romans could have taken the body, but why would they have done it after sealing the tomb with a Roman seal? It was buried. It was done. They, they had sealed the tomb. Why would the Romans want to move it, right? Well, then some people say, well, the Jewish leadership took it. But again, they were trying to keep this, uh, this idea that, that he rose from the dead from being preached there's no reason. They're the ones who asked Pilate to seal the tomb so that it was secure. They wouldn't have done it. Well, the disciples, number three in the list. Well, we've already said these guys weren't looking um, to steal the body and preach this hoax that Jesus had risen from the dead. It wasn't the disciples. They were hiding for their lives. And number four, well, grave robbers. Grave robbers took the body. It is true that, you know, in that at that time, there were grave, local grave robbers who would rob these tombs. Um, usually, if somebody was well-to-do, they had nice clothing they were buried in uh, or maybe some precious articles, right? Um, look, I believe local grave robbers had no motivation, no reason to take the body of Jesus. First of all, when they saw that Rome had sealed the tomb with one of their official seals, they knew to break that seal meant certain death. The only reason a grave robber would risk it, and how they got, would have got past the soldiers, that's another whole story, but the only reason I can think of that the grave robbers would have risked their lives is if they knew the tomb was full of gold or something, that there was something valuable inside that was worth risking their lives for. Jesus was 
an itinerant preacher. He had nowhere to lay his head. He said that. When he was crucified, he only, the only thing he owned were the clothes on his back. He had no wealth. He was not buried with anything of any value. There would be no reason for grave robbers to break in and steal the body. There is a fifth possibility, though. Okay, a fifth possibility, and that is that no one took the body of Jesus because he rose from the dead. Now, that's the most obvious one, why the tomb was empty, but again, you have people that are unwilling to believe, and so they come up with these wild speculations and theories. Number five, I'll give you three more quick. Number five, over 500 disciples saw the risen Christ at one time. Now, they were not the only ones. Uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, uh, I, I actually I think it was Peter that Jesus appeared to first, then eventually the other uh, disciples. Uh, Mary, he appeared to rather quickly that the morning of his resurrection. But look, the noted French philosopher Renan tried to discredit the resurrection by foolishly claiming that the whole idea was based on the hysterical delusions of Mary Magdalene. He chose to focus on Mary. She wasn't even the first one to see the risen Christ. But this French philosopher said she was out of her mind. She was hysterical, and she just, you know, imagined it and so on and so forth. But guys, Mary was, uh, Mary was only one out of, well, at one time, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, Jesus went up to the Galilee and appeared to over 500 disciples at one time. And that's just at that time. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he, he appeared to Peter, the other uh, 11, you know, the other uh, uh, apostles. Uh, he appeared to me as one born out of due time. And then he appeared to over 500 brethren all at the same time up in the Galilee. Um, this was something, guys, and let me say this to you. This was something that the disciples began to publicly testify to, that they had seen the risen Christ. I mean, think about the transformation in these guys. Jesus was crucified, buried. They ran for their lives and hid all weekend. And all of a sudden, they're showing up now preaching that he had risen. What, what changed them? What was going on that they became so courageous? Well, the Bible says they had seen the risen Christ. And of course, the Holy Spirit then was poured out on them, which made them more bold. Look, our whole system of jurisprudence is built on eyewitness testimony. People have been convicted of serious crimes based on one eyewitness testimony. If you got two, three, four, the more you, eyewitnesses you have, the sure is that this person is is either innocent or guilty. How about you prayed into court one day, 500 people that saw the risen Christ. Oh, they were all making it up. They, they, it was, again, it was a big conspiracy, and they got together. Let me tell you something. When they began to preach that they had seen the risen Christ, Rome began to execute them at one point. We get our English word martyr from a word, the word martyres, which is a word that, that means um, witness. Witness. 
in a court of law, you were a martyr race. You were a witness to something. But for those early disciples, when they bore witness of Jesus' resurrection, because most of them were put to death, the term became synonymous with uh, being executed for your faith, for your witness of Christ. Do you realize the way Rome put these people to death? I mean, yes, they crucified many of them. Some of them they poured pitch on and lit them on fire. Some of them they, they, they chained behind horses and dragged them up and down the Colosseum steps. Colosseum steps until they were brutally uh, just bashed beyond recognition. Others they chained to horses and had the horses go in different directions. And at any time, if any of those disciples who were facing torturous death would have recanted, Rome would have spared their lives. So if any one of them, as they were being led to the cross, if anyone would have said, we made it all up. It was Peter's idea. He put us up to it. No, that never happened. They all went to very horrific deaths maintaining that they had seen the risen Christ. Guys, for me, I don't know about you, for me, that's one of the most powerful evidences that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You remember what happened in Job chapter 1, how all the angels presented themselves before the Lord one day, and here comes Lucifer with them. And God says to Lucifer, have you considered my servant Job, not a more righteous man on the face of the earth? And Lucifer said, well, why wouldn't he be a righteous guy and love you? You've, you've put a Hedge around. I can't even get at the guy. You bust his, I was going to say socks for service, but sandals off. You bust his sandals off. He's got all this wealth. Uh, you won't let me get at the guy. Of course he's going to love you and serve you. You let me get at him, and I guarantee you he'll curse you to your face. God said, go ahead, but don't kill him. And you remember the story, right? Uh, how that in one day the devil uh, killed all his children had all of his livestock and herds um, stolen. But, but what Satan said to the Lord is very important. He said, let me get at him because skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his skin. In other words, when we're facing death, self-preservation kicks in, and people will do anything to spare their lives. Lie, cheat, whatever they got to do. Most, most people. The fact that these disciples were willing to die, what, for a lie? Uh, you're telling me that all of these people were willing to die for a lie? That's ridiculous. People often won't even die for the truth, let alone a lie. So that to me is a very powerful evidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was in fact genuine. Number six. These same disciples began preaching and testifying of the resurrection, listen, in Jerusalem. So why is that important? If the disciples were trying to spread a lie about Jesus rising from the dead, they wouldn't start spreading that lie 50 days after he was crucified and in the same town. You've got to understand something. You don't want to go where something happen where you have all these eyewitnesses to try to spread a lie, right? I was telling first service that 
In two days, November 22nd, back 1963, John F. Kennedy was shot to death, right? In a motorcade in Dallas, Texas. I remember that. I was young. I remember it because it three days preempted my cartoons. And I was ticked off about that. So I remember. All on t that was on TV was this. But if somebody, for whatever reason, wanted to spread a lie that John F. Kennedy wasn't really shot in Dallas, but in fact died in a plane crash, you could maybe sell that to young folks who weren't alive at that time. You're not going to sell it to guys like me who were alive to see what had happened. This is the idea. If you're going to lie about Jesus not, or you know, that he didn't rise from the dead, or I'm sorry, that he did, but he didn't, well, you're not going to start spreading that lie in the very town he was killed 50 days after he, he died. Usually it takes a long time for somebody to believe, for a lie to be plausible. Maybe after 50 years of JFK being killed, you might get people to buy into that. People are willing to believe in all kinds of things. But us older folks, we know. We saw it on TV. And finally, we have 27 documents. You know what they are? It's your New Testament. Matthew to Revelation. All written affirming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, not to mention, guys, not to mention how you can account for the sudden and dramatic change in the disciples. How they went from cowards to conquerors overnight. Um, who were suddenly willing to die for what they believed. Something had to happen to change these men, and I believe, again, it was seeing the risen Christ. Uh, this is especially powerful when it comes to the conversion of Saul of, T Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. Now, as we have said before, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. He was a zealot for Judaism, and he was completely consumed with the idea that Judaism was the truth of God and Christianity was nothing more than a cult. And as we have talked about it um, several times, he goes from the greatest champion against Christianity to the greatest champion of the cross overnight. What changed this guy? What changed Saul of Tarsus? who eventually became Paul the Apostle. He said it was seeing the risen Christ. He said it. Seeing the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Let me bring this to a close by just giving you a few other examples here. Oxford University professors, very heady guys, um, professors of this elite college, university, uh, but these two Oxford professors, Lord Littleton and Benjamin Gilbert West, again, intellectuals, totally unbelievers. They thought Christianity was for stupid people, you know, not smart people like us. You know what we need to do? Come together, and we need to destroy Christianity once and for all. It's too stupid to believe. How could intelligent people believe this, right? And so that's what they decided to do. The two main issues they felt they needed to dispute were, first of all, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul, 
and secondly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Lord Littleton chose the conversion of Saul. Benjamin West chose the resurrection of Christ. They both took a leave of absence from the university to go their separate ways and do their separate research. What the other didn't know was along the way, they both got converted. The other didn't know the other got converted. The one didn't know the other got converted. They were afraid to tell each other. When they finally came together and fessed up, they realized they had both been driven by the evidence to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Amazing, right? And instead of writing this book that would be the death blood of Christianity, uh, they wound up writing a book called Observations of the History and the Evidences for the Resurrection. And um, here's what they said. They said if a person rejects Jesus as the Son of God and rejects his bodily resurrection, they do so, listen, not on the basis of the evidence, but on the basis of ignorance and or stubborn, willful unbelief. You've all heard of the Guinness Book of Records, right? It has in it many people that are, have done something nobody else has ever done. All right? They have a section um, devoted or a passage or a thing devoted to the most successful trial lawyer, trial lawyer that ever lived. This guy won the most cases of any lawyer ever. Made the Guinness, Guinness Book of World Records, right? His name, Sir Lionel Lucku. And he examined the evidence for Christ's resurrection, and he also wound up giving his life to Jesus Christ. Compelled by the facts, right? You know, you have your faith, and then you have the facts. And scientists look down on us because we have faith in how everything came about, but they have the facts. Yes, yes, they have the facts, right? Everything came from nothing all by itself. That's their fact, okay? Um, another one, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, the famous 19th century professor of law at Harvard University. Uh, he also was a very, uh, very verbal skeptic of Christianity. He had written a set of, this, is, this was awesome, he had written a set of books called The Laws of Legal Evidence. He was, a, he was a, a, a master of being able to gather and read evidence and come to a conclusion. Okay, So he writes this, this series of books called The Laws of Legal Evidence. <laughs> and he was challenged by some of his Christian students to apply those very laws to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Big shot. Okay. He accepted the challenge, and in the process, he became a Christian. His conclusion was, and I'm quoting him, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best established events in history, according to the laws of legal evidence administered in the courts of justice, end quote. He went on to say, I quote, all that Christianity asks of men is that they would treat its evidences as they treat the evidence of other things. End quote. And he's thinking about in a court of law, in a court of law, right? Listen, guys. Believing in Jesus Christ, and especially in his death and resurrection, is not something that is hard to do. The facts all point to it. You know, faith and facts are not mutually exclusive. As Christians, we follow the facts until the facts end, 
then we take a small step in faith because everything points to that step of faith. That God made the world, the universe, right? The facts all point there. The scientists don't have the facts. The facts all point there, and where the facts end, we say, God, I have enough to believe. And we take the step. Yeah, there's faith involved. Where the, where the atheist looks at the facts, turns around 180 degrees, and takes a blind leap into the darkness and comes up with theories and, and all kinds of weird conclusions. Let me just end by saying this. It is really, really sad that many, so many people, many intelligent people, as we've just given you um, some that were extremely intelligent, that were honest enough to look at the facts and got saved. But there are many, many intelligent people that go on denying or ignoring the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For whatever reason they have, whatever bias, they do so to their own peril, eternal peril. And look, I know many of you. I don't know all of you. We're online right now, so I don't know who's watching, live streaming our service right now. But this is something I would leave with any audience that I've just presented all this information to. What do you think was the reason the tomb was empty? Critics, they admit the tomb was empty. So if you're one of those that believes the tomb was empty, why do you think it was empty? Why do you think it was empty? And if you're one of those that believe, why well, believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Then what have you done with that information? What, how has that faith impacted your life? Because, folks, yeah, I mean, hell's going to be loaded with atheists who refuse to look at the facts honestly or because of bias they wouldn't accept Christ for who he claimed to be and what he did. I get that. You know, there's a lot of people that have grown up in church, though. Again, going to Sunday school and Awanas and everything else, Bible camp, that really do believe Jesus is the Son of God, died for their sins, and rose again the third day from the dead. But they have not done anything with that information. It's all in their head. They have never said, wow, that is something I need to commit my life to. That, that is truth that I need to receive into my heart and allow God to come in and make uh, and, 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 and really direct my life for his glory in some way. I need to, that information has got to change a person in some way. Otherwise, it's really not believed. You can say you believe it, but if you really believed it, you would bow the knee to Christ, receive him as your Savior, and go forward with a changed life. So that's the question I'm leaving with all of you this morning. Do you believe the tomb was empty? And if so, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And if you believe that, has that truth impacted your life at all? If it hasn't, today's the day of salvation. Receive him right now as your Lord, your Savior, your risen Savior, that he might use you for his glory and someday take you to live with him in heaven for eternity. That's what the resurrection is all about. New life. And all of us can be a part of it if we open our hearts to Christ, receive him as our Savior, and turn control of our life over to him. So, Father, we thank you that our faith is not built on feelings. It is built on many infallible proofs, the resurrection being first and foremost. 
And Lord, we just thank you that our faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It's an intelligent faith. It's a faith where the facts point to. And give us grace, Lord, that we would always embrace the truths of your word in such a way that they would impact the way we live because that's going to impact where we live for eternity. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.